Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville, Part 8. Chapter 49. The Hyena. There are certain queer times and occasions in this strange mixed affair we call life when a man takes this whole universe for a vast practical joke, though the wit thereof he but dimly discerns and more than suspects that the joke is at nobody's expense but his own. However, nothing dispirits and nothing seems worthwhile disputing. He bolts down all events, all creeds and beliefs and persuasions, all hard things visible and invisible, never mind how knobby, as an ostrich of potent digestion gobbles down bullets and gunflints. And as for small difficulties and worryings, prospects of sudden disaster, peril of life and limb, all these, and death itself, seem to him only sly, good-natured hits, and jolly punches in the side bestowed by the unseen and unaccountable old joker. That odd sort of wayward mood I am speaking of comes over a man only in some time of extreme tribulation. It comes in the very midst of his earnestness, so that what just before might have seemed to him a thing most momentous now seems but a part of the general joke. There is nothing like the perils of wailing to breed this free and easy sort of genial desperado philosophy, and with it I now regarded this whole voyage of the Pequod, and the great white whale its object. Queequeg, said I, when they had dragged me, the last man, to the deck, and I was still shaking myself in my jacket to fling off the water. Queequeg, my fine friend, does this sort of thing often happen? Without much emotion, though soaked through just like me, he gave me to understand that such things did often happen. Mr. Stubb, said I, turning to that worthy who, buttoned up in his oil jacket, was now calmly smoking his pipe in the rain. Mr. Stubb, I think I have heard you say that of all the whalemen you ever met, our chief mate, Mr. Starbuck, is by far the most careful and prudent. I suppose, then, that going plump on a flying whale with your sail set in a foggy squall is the height of a whaleman's discretion? Certain I have lured for whales from a leaking ship in a gale off Cape Horn. Mr. Flask, said I, turning to the little king post who was standing close by, you are experienced in these things, and I am not. Will you tell me whether it is an unalterable law in this fishery, Mr. Flask, for an oarsman to break his own back, pulling himself back foremost into death's jaws? Can you twist that smaller, said Flask? Yes, that's the law. I should like to see a boat's crew backing water to a whale face foremost. <laughs> the whale would give them squint for squint, mind that. Here, then, from three impartial witnesses, I had a deliberate statement of the entire case. Considering, therefore, that squalls and capsizings in the water and consequent bivouacs on the deep were matters of common occurrence in this kind of life, considering that all the superlatively critical instant of going on to the whale I must resign my life into the hands of him who steered the boat, 
oftentimes a fellow who at that very moment is in his impetuousness upon the point of scuttling the craft with his own frantic stampings, considering that the particular disaster to our own particular boat was chiefly to be imputed to Starbuck's driving on to his whale almost into the teeth of a squall, and considering that Starbuck, notwithstanding, was famous for his great heedfulness in the fishery, considering that I belong to this uncommonly prudent Starbucks boat, and finally, considering in what a devil's chase I was implicated, touching the white whale, taking all things together, I say, I thought I might as well go below and make a rough draft of my will. Queequeg, said I, come along, you shall be my lawyer, executor, and legatee. It may seem strange that of all men sailors should be tinkering with their last wills and testaments, but there are no people in the world more fond of that diversion. This was the fourth time in my nautical life that I had done the same thing. After the ceremony was concluded upon the present occasion, I felt all the easier. A stone was rolled away from my heart. Besides, all the days I should now live would be as good as the days that Lazarus lived after his resurrection, a supplementary clean gain of so many months or weeks as the case might be. I survived myself. My death and burial were locked up in my chest. I looked round me tranquilly and contentedly like a quiet ghost with a clean conscience sitting inside the bars of a snug family vault. Now then, thought I, unconsciously rolling up the sleeves of my frock, here goes for a cool, collected dive at death and destruction, and the devil fetch the hindmost. Chapter 50 Ahab's Boat and Crew Fadala Who'd have thought it, Flask? cried Stubb. If I had but one leg, would not catch me in a boat, unless you had to stop a plug hole with my timber toe. Oh, he's a wonderful old man. I don't think it's so strange, after all, on that account, said Flask. If his leg were off at the hip now, that would be a different thing. That would disable him. But he has one knee and a good part of the other one left, you know. I don't know that, my little man. I never yet saw him kneel. Among whale-wise people, it has often been argued whether, considering the paramount importance of his life to the success of the voyage, it is right for a whaling captain to jeopardize that life in the active perils of the chase. So Tamerlane's soldiers often argued with tears in their eyes whether that invaluable life of his ought to be carried into the thickest of the fight. But with Ahab, the question assumed a modified aspect. Considering that with two legs, man is but a hobbling white in all times of danger, considering that the pursuit of whales is always under great and extraordinary difficulties, that every individual moment, indeed, then comprises a peril, under these circumstances, is it wise for any maimed man to enter a whaleboat on the hunt? As a general thing, the joint owners of the Pequod must have plainly thought not. Ahab well knew that, although his friends at home would think little of his entering a boat in certain comparatively harmless vicissitudes of the chase, for the sake of being near the scene of action and giving his orders in person, yet for Captain Ahab to have a boat actually apportioned to him as a regular headsman in the hunt, above all for Captain Ahab to be supplied with five extra men as that same boat's crew, he well knew that such generous conceits never entered the heads of the owners of the Pequod. Therefore, he had not solicited a boat's crew from them, nor had he in any way hinted his desires on that head. Nevertheless, he had taken private measures of his own touching all that matter. 
Until Cabaco's published discovery, the sailors had little foreseen it, though to be sure when, after being a little while out of port, all hands had concluded the customary business of fitting the whaleboats for service, when some time after this Ahab was now and then found bestirring himself in the matter of making thole pins with his own hands for what was thought to be one of the spare boats, and even solicitously cutting the small wooden skewers which, when the line is running out, are pinned over the groove in the bow, when all this was observed in him, and particularly his solicitation in having an extra coat of sheathing in the bottom of the boat, as if to make it better withstand the pointed pressure of his ivory limb, and also the anxiety he evinced in exactly shaping the thighboard, or clumsy cleat, as it is sometimes called the horizontal piece in the boat's bow for bracing the knee against in darting or stabbing at the whale, when it was observed how often he stood up in that bow boat with his solitary knee fixed in that semicircular depression on the cleat, and with the carpenter's chisel gouged out a little here and straightened it a little there, all these things, I say, had awakened much interest and curiosity at the time, but almost everybody supposed that this particular preparative heedfulness in Ahab must only be with a view to the ultimate chase of Moby Dick, for he had already revealed his intention to hunt that mortal monster in person. But such a supposition did by no means involve the remotest suspicion to any boat's crew being assigned to that boat. Now, with the subordinate phantoms, what wonder remained soon waned away, for in a whaler wonders soon wane. Besides, now and then, such unaccountable odds and ends of strange nations come up from the unknown nooks and ash-holes of the earth to man these floating outlaws of whalers, and the ships themselves often pick up such queer castaway creatures found tossing about the open sea on planks, bits of wreck, oars, whaleboats, canoes, blown off Japanese junks and what not, that Beelzebub himself might climb up the side and step down into the cabin to chat with the captain, and it would not create any unsubduable excitement in the forecastle. But be all this as it may, certain it is that while the subordinate phantoms soon found their place among the crew, though still, as it were, somehow distinct from them, yet that hair-turbaned Fadala remained a muffled mystery to the last. Once he came in a mannerly world like this, by what sort of unaccountable tie he soon evinced himself to be linked with Ahab's peculiar fortunes, nay, so far as to have some sort of half-hinted influence, heaven knows, but it might have been even authority over him. All this none knew. But one cannot sustain an indifferent air concerning Fadala. He was such a creature as civilized domestic people in the temperate zone only see in their dreams, and that but dimly, but the like of whom now and then glide among the unchanging Asiatic communities, especially the Oriental Isles to the east of the continent those insulated, immemorial, unalterable countries which even in these modern days still preserve much of the ghostly aboriginalness of Earth's primal generations, when the memory of the first man was a distinct recollection and all men his descendants, unknowing whence he came, eyed each other as real phantoms and asked of the sun and the moon why they were created and to what end, when, though, according to Genesis, the angels indeed consorted with the daughters of men, the devils also, add the uncanonical rabbis, indulged in mundane amours. Chapter 51 The Spirit Spout Days Weeks passed, and under easy sail the ivory Pequod had slowly swept across four several cruising grounds, that off the Azores, off the Cape de Verdes, on the plate, so-called, being off the mouth of the Rio de la Plata, and the Carroll Ground, an unstaked, watery locality southerly from St. Helena. 
It was while gliding through these latter waters that one serene and moonlit night, while all the waves rolled by like scrolls of silver, and by their soft suffusing seethings made what seemed a silvery silence, not a solitude, on such a silent night a silvery jet was seen far in advance of the white bubbles at the bow. Lit up by the moon, it looked celestial, seemed some plumed and glittering god uprising from the sea. Vidala first described this jet. For of these moonlight nights, it was his wont to mount to the mainmast head and stand a lookout there with the same precision as if it had been day. And yet, though herds of whales were seen by night, not one whaleman in a hundred would venture a lowering for them. You may think with what emotions, then, the seaman beheld this old oriental perched aloft at such unusual hours, his turban and the moon companions in one sky, but when, after spending his uniform interval there for several successive nights without uttering a single sound, when, after all this silence, his unearthly voice was heard announcing that silvery moonlit jet, Every reclining mariner started to his feet as if some winged spirit had lighted in the ringing and hailed the mortal crew. There she blows! Had the trump of judgment blown, they could not have quivered more, yet still they felt no terror, rather pleasure. For though it was a most unwanted hour, yet so impressive was the cry and so deliriously exciting that it almost every soul on board instinctively desired a lowering. Walking the deck with quick side-lunging strides, Ahab commanded the t'gallant sails and royals to be set and every stunsel spread. The best man in the ship must take the helm. Then, with every masthead manned, the piled-up craft rolled down before the wind. The strange, unheaving, lifting tendency of the taffrail breeze filling the hollows of so many sails made the buoyant, hovering deck to feel like air beneath the feet, while she rushed along as if two antagonistic influences were struggling in her, one to mount direct to heaven, the other to drive yawingly into some horizontal goal. And had you watched Ahab's face that night, you would have thought that in him also two different things were warring. While his one live leg made lively echoes along the deck, every stroke of his dead limb sounded like a coffin tap. On life and death this old man walked. But though the ship so swiftly sped, and though from every eye like arrows the eager glances shot, yet the silvery jet was no more seen that night. Every sailor swore he saw it once, but not a second time. This midnight spout had almost grown a forgotten thing when, some days after, lo, at the same silent hour, it again announced. Again it was described by all, but upon making sail to overtake it, once more it disappeared as if it had never been. And so it served us night after night, till no one heeded it but to wonder at it. Mysteriously jetted into the clear moonlight, or starlight, as the case might be, disappearing again for one whole day, or two days, or three, and somehow seeming at every distinct repetition to be advancing still further and further in our van, this solitary jet seemed forever alluring us on. Nor with the immemorial superstition of their race, and in accordance with the preternaturalness, as it seemed, which in many things invested the Pequod, were there wanting some of the seamen who swore that wherever and wherever described, at however remote times or however far apart latitudes and longitudes, that unerable spout was cast by one self-same whale, and that whale, Moby Dick.
For a time there reigned, too, a sense of peculiar dread at this flitting apparition, as if it were treacherously beckoning us on and on, in order that the monster might turn round upon us and rend us at last in the remotest and most savage seas. These temporary apprehensions, so vague but so awful, derived a wondrous potency from the contrasting serenity of the weather, which beneath all its blue blandness some thought there lurked a devilish charm. As for days and days we voyaged along through seas so wearily, lonesomely mild, that all space, in repugnance to our vengeful errand, seemed vacating itself of life before our urn-like prow. But at last, when turning to the eastward, the cape winds began howling around us, and we rose and fell upon the long, troubled seas that are there. When the ivory-tusked Pequod sharply bowed to the blast, and gored the dark waves in her madness, till, like showers of silver chips, the foam flakes flew over her bulwarks, then all this desolate vacuity of life went away, but gave pace to sights more dismal than before. Close to our bows, strange forms in the water darted hither and thither before us, while thick in our rear flew the inscrutable sea ravens. And every morning, perched on our stays, rows of these birds were seen, and spite of our hootings for a long time obstinately clung to the hemp, as though they deemed our ship some drifting, uninhabited craft, a thing appointed to desolation, and therefore fit roosting place for their homeless selves, and heaved and heaved, still unrestingly heaved the black sea, as if its vast tides were a conscience, and the great mundane soul were in anguish and remorse for the long sin and suffering it had bred. Cape of Good Hope, do they call ye? Rather, Cape Tormentoso, as called of yore, for long allured by the perfidious silences that before had attended us, we found ourselves launched into this tormented sea where guilty beings transformed into those fowls and those fish, seemed condemned to swim on everlastingly without any haven in store, or beat that black air without any horizon, but calm snow-white and unvarying still directing its fountain of feathers to the sky still beckoning us on from before the solitary jet would at times be described during all this blackness of the elements ahab though assuming for the time the almost continual command of the drenched and dangerous deck manifested the gloomiest reserve and more seldom than ever addressed his mates in tempestuous times like these after everything above and aloft has been secured nothing more can be done but passively to await the issue of the gale then captain and crew become practical fatalists so, with his ivory leg inserted into its accustomed hole, and with one hand firmly grasping a shroud, Ahab for hours and hours would stand gazing dead to windward, while an occasional squall of sleet or snow would all but congeal his very eyelashes together. Meanwhile, the crew, driven from the forward part of the ship by the perilous seas that burstingly broke over its bows, stood in a line along the bulwarks in the waist, the better to guard against the leaping waves. Each man had slipped himself into a sort of bowline secured to the rail, in which he swung as in a loosened belt. Few or no words were spoken, and the silent ship, as if manned by painted sailors in wax, day after day tore through all the swift madness and gladness of the demoniac waves, by night the same muteness of humanity before the shrieks of the ocean prevailed, still in silence the men swung the bowlines, still wordless Ahab stood up to the blast. 
Even when wearied nature seemed demanding repose, he would not seek that repose in his hammock. Never could Starbuck forget the old man's aspect when, one night, going down into the cabin to mark how the barometer stood, he saw him with closed eyes sitting straight in his floor-screwed chair, the rain and half-melted sleet of the storm from which he had some time before emerged still slowly dripping from the unremoved hat and coat. On the table beside him lay unrolled one of those charts of tides and currents which had previously been spoken of. His lantern swung from his tightly clenched hand. Though the body was erect, the head was thrown back so that the closed eyes were pointed towards the needle of the telltale that swung from a beam in the ceiling. Footnote. The cabin compass called the telltale because without going to the compass at the helm, the captain while below can inform himself on the course of the ship. End footnote. Terrible old man, thought Starbuck with a shudder. Sleeping in this gale, still thou steadfastly eyest thy purpose. Chapter 52 The Albatross Southeastward from the Cape, off the distant Crozettes, a good cruising ground for right whalemen, a sail loomed ahead. The Goni, Albatross, by name. As she slowly drew nigh from my lofty perch at the foremasthead, I had a good view of that sight so remarkable to a tiro in the far ocean fisheries, a whaler at sea, and long absent from home. As if the waves had been fullers, the craft was bleached like the skeleton of a stranded walrus. All down her sides this spectral appearance was traced with long channels of reddened rust, while all her spars and her rigging were like the thick branches of trees furred with a hoarfrost. Only her lower sails were set. A wild sight it was to see her long-bearded lookouts at those three mastheads. They seemed clad in the skins of beasts, so torn and bepatched the raiment that had survived nearly four years of cruising. Standing in iron hoops nailed to the mast, they swayed and swung over a fathomless sea, and though when the ship slowly glided close under our stern, we six men in the air came so nigh to each other that we might almost have leapt from the mastheads of one ship to those of the other, yet those forlorn-looking fishermen mildly eyeing us as they passed said not one word to our lookouts, while the quarter-deck hail was being heard from below. Ship ahoy! Have you seen the white whale? But as the strange captain, leaning over the pallid bulwarks, was in the act of putting his trumpet to his mouth, it somehow fell from his hand into the sea, and the wind now rising amain, he in vain strove to make himself heard without it. Meantime, his ship was still increasing the distance between. While in various silent ways the seamen of the Pequod were evincing their observance of this ominous incident at the first mere mention of the white whale's name to another ship, Ahab, for a moment, paused. It almost seemed as though he would have lowered a boat to board the stranger had not the threatening wind forbade, but taking advantage of his windward position, he again seized his trumpet, and knowing by her aspect that the stranger vessel was an Nantucketer, and shortly bound home, he loudly hailed, Ahoy there! This is the Pequod bound round the world. Tell them to address all future letters to the Pacific Ocean, and this time, three years, if I am not home, tell them to address them to... At that moment the two wakes were fairly crossed, and instantly then, in accordance with their singular ways, shoals of small harmless fish that for some days had been placidly swimming by our side darted away with what seemed shuddering fins and ranged themselves fore and aft with the stranger's flanks. 
though in the course of his continual voyagings Ahab must often before have noticed a similar sight, yet to any monomaniac man the veriest trifles capriciously carry meanings. Some away from me, do ye? murmured Ahab, gazing over into the water. There seemed but little in the words, but the tone conveyed more of a deep, helpless sadness than the insane man had ever before evinced. But turning to the steersman, who thus far had been holding the ship to the, in the wind to diminish her headway, he cried out in his old lion voice, Up helm! Keep her off round to the world! Round the world! There is much to that sound to inspire proud feelings, but whither too does all that circumnavigation conduct? Only through numberless perils to the very point whence we started, where those that we left behind secure were all the time before us. Were this the world an endless plain, and by sailing eastward we could forever reach new distances and discover sights more sweet and strange than any Cyclades or islands of King Solomon, then there were promise in the voyage. But in pursuit of those far mysteries we dream of, or in tormented chase of that demon phantom that, some time or other, swims before all human hearts while chasing such over this round globe, they either lead us in barren mazes, or midway leave us whelmed. Chapter 53 The Gam The ostensible reason why Ahab did not go on board of the whaler we had spoken was this. The wind and sea betoked storms. But even had this not been the case, he would not, after all, perhaps have boarded her, judging by his subsequent conduct on similar occasions. If so, it had been that, by the process of hailing, he had obtained a negative answer to the question he put. For, as it eventually turned out, he cared not to consort, even for five minutes, with any stranger captain, except he could contribute some of that information he so absorbingly sought. But all this might remain inadequately estimated were not something said here of the peculiar usages of whaling vessels when meeting each other in foreign seas, and especially on common cruising grounds. If two strangers crossing the Pine Barrens in New York State, or the equally desolate Salisbury Plain in England, if casually encountering each other in such inhospitable wilds, these twain, for the life of them, cannot well avoid a mutual salutation, and stopping for a moment to interchange the news, and perhaps sitting down for a while and resting in concert. Then how much more natural upon the illimitable Pine Barrens and Salisbury Plains of the sea two whaling vessels descrying each other at the ends of the earth off lone Fanning's Island or the faraway King's Mills, how much more natural, I say, that under such circumstances these ships should not only interchange hails, but come into still closer and more friendly and sociable contact. And especially would this seem to be a matter of course in the case of vessels owned in one seaport, and whose captains, officers, and not a few of the men are personally known to each other, and consequently have all sorts of dear domestic things to talk about. For the long-absent ship, the outward bounder perhaps has letters on board. At any rate, she will be sure to let her have some papers of a date a year or two later than the last one in her blurred and thumb-worn files. And in return for that courtesy, the outward-bound ship would receive the latest whaling intelligence from the cruising ground to which she may be destined a thing of the utmost importance to her. And in degree, all this will hold true concerning whaling vessels crossing each other's track on the cruising ground itself, even though they are equally long absent from home, for one of them may have received a transfer of letters from some third and now far remote vessel, and some of those letters may be for the people of the ship she now meets. 
Besides, they would exchange the whaling news and have an agreeable chat. For not only would they meet with all the sympathies of sailors, but likewise with all the peculiar congenialities arising from a common pursuit and mutually shared privations and perils. Nor would difference of country make any very essential difference. That is, so long as both parties speak one language, as is the case with uh, the Americans and English. Though to be sure, for the small number of English whalers, such meetings do not very often occur, and when they do occur, there is too apt to be a sort of shyness between them. For your Englishman is rather reserved, and your Yankee, he does not fancy that sort of thing in anybody but himself. Besides, the English whalers sometimes affect a kind of metropolitan superiority over the American whalers regarding the long, lean Nantucketer, with his nondescript provincialisms as a sort of sea peasant. But where this superiority in the English whalemen does really consist, it would be hard to say, seeing that the Yankees in one day collectively kill more whales than all the English collectively in ten years. But this is a harmless little foible in the English whale hunters, which the Nantucketer does not take much to heart, probably because he knows that he has a few foibles himself. So, then, we see that of all ships separately sailing the sea, the whalers have the most reason to be sociable, and they are so. Whereas some merchant ships crossing each other's wake in the mid-Atlantic will oftentimes pass on without so much as a single word of recognition, mutually cutting each other on the high seas, like a brace of dandies in Broadway, and all the time indulging, perhaps, in finical criticism of each other's rig. As for men of war, when they chance to meet at sea, they first go through such a string of silly bowings and scrapings, such a ducking of ensigns, that there does not seem to be much right-down hearty goodwill and brotherly love about it at all. As touching slave ships meeting, why, they are in such a prodigious hurry, they run away from each other as soon as possible. And as for pirates, when they chance to cross each other's crossbones, the first hail is, How many skulls? The same way that whalers hail, How many barrels? And that question once answered, pirates straightway steer apart, for they are infernal villains on both sides and don't like to see overmuch of each other's villainous likenesses. But look at the godly, honest, unostentatious, hospitable, sociable, free and easy whaler. What does the whaler do when she meets any other whaler in any sort of decent weather? She has a gam, a thing so utterly unknown to all other ships that they had never heard the name even, and if by chance they should hear of it, they only grin at it and repeat gamesome stuff about spouters and blubber boilers and such like petty exclamations. Why it is that all merchant seamen, and also all pirates, and man-of-war's men, and slave ship sailors, cherish such scornful feelings towards whale ships, this is a question it would be hard to answer. Because in the case of pirates, say, I should like to know whether that profession of theirs has any peculiar glory about it. It sometimes ends in uncommon elevation, indeed, but only at the gallows. And besides, when a man is elevated in that odd fashion, he has no proper foundation for his superior altitude. Hence, I conclude that in boasting himself to be high lifted above a whaleman, in that assertion the pirate has no solid basis to stand on. But what is a gam? You might wear out your index finger running up and down the columns of dictionaries and never find the word. Dr. Johnson never attained to that erudition. Noah Webster's Ark does not hold it. 
Nevertheless, this same expressive word has now for many years been in constant use among some 15,000 true-born Yankees. Certainly, it needs a definition and should be incorporated into the lexicon. With a view, let me learnedly define it. GAM Noun. A social meeting of two, or more, whale ships, generally on a cruising ground when, after exchanging hails, they exchange visits by boat's crews, the two captains remaining for a time on board of one ship, and the two chief mates on the other. There is another little item about gamming, which must not be forgotten here. All professions have their own little peculiarities of detail, so has the whale fishery. In a pirate, man-of-war, or slave ship, when the captain is rowed anywhere in his boat, he always sits in the stern sheets on a comfortable, sometimes cushioned seat there, and often steers himself with a pretty little milliner's tiller, tiller decorated with gay cords and ribbons. But the whaleboat has no seat astern, no sofa of that sort whatever, and no tiller at all. High times indeed if the whaling captains were wheeled about the water on casters like gouty old aldermen in patent chairs. As for a tiller, the whaleboat never admits of any such effeminacy, and therefore, as in gamming, a complete boat's crew must leave the ship, and hence, as the boat's steerer, or harpooner, is of the number, that subordinate is the steersman upon the occasion, and the captain, having no place to sit in, is pulled off to his visit, all standing like a pine tree, and often you will notice that being conscious of the eyes of the whole visible world resting on him from the sides of the two ships, this standing captain is all alive to the importance of sustaining his dignity by maintaining his legs. Nor is this any very easy matter, for in his rear is the immense projecting steering oar hitting him now and then in the small of his back, the after oar reciprocating by wrapping his knees in front. He is thus completely wedged before and behind and can only expand himself sideways by settling down on his stretched legs, but a sudden violent pitch of the boat will often go far to topple him, because length of foundation is nothing without corresponding breadth. Merely make a spread angle of two poles, and you cannot stand them up. Then again, it would never do in plain sight of the world's riveted eyes, it would never do, I say, for this straddling captain to be seen steadying himself the slightest particle by catching hold of anything with his hands. Indeed, as a token of his entire buoyant self-command, he generally carries his hands in his trousers pockets. But perhaps, being generally very large, heavy hands, he carries them there for ballast. Nevertheless, there have occurred instances, well authenticated ones too, where the captain has been known for an uncommonly critical moment or two in a sudden squall, say, to seize hold of the nearest oarsman's hair and hold on there like grim death. Chapter 54 The Town Hose Story As Told at the Golden Inn the Cape of Good Hope and all the watery region round about there is much like some noted four corners of a great highway, where you meet more travelers than in any other part. It was not very long after speaking the Goni that another homeward-bound whaleman, the Townhoe, footnote, the ancient whale cry upon first sighting a whale from the masthead, still used by whalemen in hunting the famous Galapagos terrapin, end footnote, was encountered. She was manned almost wholly by Polynesians. In the short gam that ensued, she gave us strong news of Moby Dick. 
To some, the general interest in the white whale was now wildly heightened by a circumstance of the town hose story, which seemed obscurely to involve with the whale a certain wondrous inverted visitation of one of those so-called judgments of God which at times are said to overtake some men. This latter circumstance, with its own particular accompaniments forming what may be called the secret part of the tragedy about to be narrated, never reached the ears of Captain Ahab and his mates, for that secret part of the story was unknown to the captain of the town ho himself. It was the private property of three confederated white seamen of that ship, one of whom, it seems, communicated it to Tashtigo with Romish injunctions of secrecy. But the following night, Tashtigo rambled in his sleep and revealed so much of it in that way that when he was wakened, he could not well withhold the rest. Nevertheless, so potent an influence did this thing have on those seamen in the Pequod who came to the full knowledge of it, and by such a strange delicacy, to call it so, were they governed in this matter that they kept the secret among themselves so that it never transpired abaft the Pequod's mainmast interweaving in its proper place this darker thread with the story as publicly narrated on the ship, the whole of this strange affair I now proceed to put on the lasting record. For my humor's sake, I shall preserve the style in which I once narrated it at Lima, to a lounging circle of my Spanish friends, one saint's eve, smoking upon the thick gilt tiled plaza of the Golden Inn. Of those fine cavaliers, the young Dons, Pedro, and Sebastian, were on the closer terms with me, and hence the interluding questions they occasionally put, and which are duly answered at the time. <clears throat> Some two years prior to my first learning the events which I am about rehearsing to you, gentlemen, the town ho, sperm whaler of Nantucket, was cruising in your Pacific here not very many days sail eastward from the eaves of this good golden inn. She was somewhere to the northward of the line. One morning, upon handling the pumps according to daily usage, it was observed that she made more water in her hold than common. They supposed a swordfish had stabbed her, gentlemen. But the captain, having some unusual reason for believing that rare good luck awaited him in those latitudes, and therefore being very averse to quit them, and the leak not being then considered at all dangerous, though, indeed, they could not find after searching the hold as low down as was possible in rather heavy weather, the ship still continued her cruisings. The mariners working at the pumps at wide and easy intervals, but no good luck came. More days went by, and not only was the leak yet undiscovered, but it sensibly increased, so much so that now, taking some alarm, the captain, making all sail, stood away for the nearest harbor among the islands, there to have his hull hove out and repaired. Though no small passage was before her, yet, if the commonest chance favored, he did not at all fear that his ship would founder, by the way, because his pumps were of the best, and being periodically relieved at them, those six and thirty of his men could easily keep the ship free, never mind if the leak should double in her. In truth, well nigh of the whole of this passage being attended by very prosperous breezes, the town hole had all but certainly arrived in perfect safety at her port without the occurrence of the least fatality. Had it not been for the brutal overbearing of Radney, the mate, a vineyarder and a bitterly provoking vengeance of Steelkilt, a lakeman and desperado from Buffalo. Lakeman! Buffalo! Pray, what is a lake man, and where is buffalo? said Don Sebastian, rising in his swinging mat of grass. 
on the eastern side of our Lake Erie, Don, but I crave your courtesy. Maybe you shall soon hear further of all that. Now, gentlemen, in square sail brigs and three-masted ships, well nigh as large and stout as any that ever sailed out of your old callow to fair Manila, this lakeman, in the landlocked heart of our America, had yet been nurtured by all those agrarian freebooting impressions popularly connected with the open ocean. For in their interflowing aggregate, those grand freshwater seas of ours, Erie and Ontario and Huron and Superior and Michigan, possess an ocean-like experience expansiveness with many of the ocean's noblest traits with many of its rhymed varieties of races and of climes they contain round archipelagos of romantic isles even as the polynesian waters do in large part are shored by two great contrasting nations as the atlantic is they furnish long maritime approaches to our numerous territorial colonies from the east dotted all round their banks here and there are frowned upon by batteries and by the goat-like craggy guns of lofty Mackinac. They have heard the fleet thunderings of naval victories. At intervals they yield their beaches to wild barbarians whose red-painted faces flash out their peltry wigwams. For leagues and leagues are flanked by ancient and unentered forests where gaunt pines stand like serried lines of kings and gothic genealogies. Those same woods harboring wild Afric beasts of prey and silken creatures whose exported furs give robes to Tartar emperors. They mirror the paved capitals of Buffalo and Cleveland as well as Winnebago villages. They float alike the full-rigged merchant ship and the armed cruiser of the state, the steamer and the beach canoe. They are swept by Borean and dismasting blasts as direful as any that lash the salted wave. They know what shipwrecks are. For out of sight of land, however inland, they have drowned full many a midnight ship with all its shrieking crew. Thus, gentlemen, though an inlander, Steelkilt was a wild ocean born and wild ocean nurtured as much of an audacious mariner as any. And for Radney though in his infancy he may have laid down on the lone nantucket beach to nurse at his maternal sea though in after life he had long followed our austere atlantic and your contemplative pacific yet was he quite as vengeful and full of social quarrel as the backwoods seamen fresh from the latitudes of buckhorn handled buoy knives yet was this Nantucketer a man with some good-hearted traits, and this Lakeman a mariner who, though a sort of devil, indeed might yet by inflexible firmness only tempered by that common decency of man, recognition which is the meanest slave's right? Thus treated, this steel kilt had long been retained harmless and docile. At all events, he had proved thus far. But Radney was doomed, and maybe mad, and steel kilt. But, gentlemen, you shall hear. It was not more than a day or two at the furthest after pointing her prow for her island haven that the town hose leak seemed again increasing, but only so as to require an hour or more at the pumps every day. You must know that in a settled and civilized ocean like our Atlantic, for example, some skippers think little of pumping their whole way across it, though of a still, sleepy night, should the officer of the deck happen to forget his duty in that respect, the probability would be that he and his shipmates would never again remember it, on account of all hands gently subsiding to the bottom. 
nor in the solitary and savage seas far from you to the westward, gentlemen, is it altogether unusual for ships to keep clanging at their pump handles in full chorus even for a voyage of considerable length, that is, if it lie along a tolerably accessible coast, or if any other reasonable retreat is afforded them. It is only when a leaky vessel is in some very out-of-the-way part of these waters, some really landless latitude, that her captain begins to feel a little anxious. Much of this had it been with the town ho, so when her leak was found gaining once more, there was, in truth, some small concern manifested by several of her company, especially by Radney, the mate. He commanded the upper sails to be well hoisted, sheeted home anew, and every way expanded to the breeze. Now this Radney, I suppose, was as little of a coward, and as little inclined to any sort of nervous apprehensiveness touching his own person as any fearless, unthinking creature on land or on sea that you can conveniently imagine, gentlemen. Therefore, when he betrayed this solicitude about the safety of the ship, some of the seamen declared that it was only on account of his being a part-owner in her. So, when they were working that evening at the pumps, there was on this head no small gamesomeness slyly going on amongst them, as they stood with their feet continually overflowing by the rippling clear water, clear as any mountain spring, gentlemen, that bubbled up from the pumps, ran across the deck, and poured itself out in steady spouts at the lee scupper holes. Now, as you well know, it is not seldom the case in this conventional world of ours, watery or otherwise, that when a person placed in command over his fellow men finds one of them to be very significantly his superior in general pride of manhood, straight away against that man he conceives an unconquerable dislike and bitterness, and if he have a chance, he will pull down and pulverize the subaltern's tower and make a little heap of dust of it. But this conceit of mine, as it may, gentlemen, at all events, Steelkilt was a tall and noble animal with a head like a Roman and a flowing golden beard like the tasseled hosings of your last viceroy snorting charger, and a brain, and a heart, and a soul in him, gentlemen, which had made Steelkilt Charlemagne had he been born son to Charlemagne's father. But Radney, the mate, was ugly as a mule, yet as hardy, as stubborn, as malicious. He did not love Steelkilt, and Steelkilt knew it. Espying the mate drawing near as he was toiling at the pump with the rest, the lake man affected not to notice him, but unawed went on with his gay banterings. Ay, ay, my merry lads, it's a lively leak this. Hold a canakin, one of ye, and ha let's have a taste. By the Lord, it's worth bottling. I tell you what, men, old Rad's investment must have gone for it. He had best cut away this part of the hull and tow it home. The fact is, boys, that swordfish only began the job. He's come back again with a gang of ship carpenters, sawfish and filefish and whatnot, and the whole posse of them now hard at work cutting and slashing at the bottom, making improvements. I suppose if old Rad were here now, I'd tell him to jump overboard and scatter them. They're playing the devil with his estate. I can tell him, but he's simple, old soul Rad, and a beauty too, boys. They say the rest of his property is invested in looking glasses. I wonder if he'd give a poor devil like me the model of his nose. Damn your eyes! What's that pump stopping for? Roared Rodney, pretending not to have heard the sailor's talk. Thunder away at it! 
Aye, aye, sir, said Steel Kit, merry as a cricket. Lively, boys, lively now. And with that, the pump clanged like 50 fire engines. The men tossed their hats off to it, and ere long that peculiar gasping of the lungs was heard, which denotes the fullest tension of life's utmost energies. Quitting the pump at last with the rest of his band, the lake man went forward all panting and sat himself down on the windlass, his face fiery red and his eyes bloodshot, and wiping the profuse sweat from his brow. Now what cozening fiend it was, gentlemen, that possessed Radney to meddle with such a man in that corporeal exasperated state, I know not, but it so happened, and tolerably striding along the deck, the mate commanded him to get a broom and sweep down the planks, and also a shovel to remove some offensive matter matters consequent upon allowing a pig to run at large. Now, gentlemen, sweeping a ship's deck at sea is a piece of household work which in all times but raging gales is regularly attended to every evening. It has been known to be done in the case of ships actually foundering at the time. Such, gentlemen, is the inflexibility of sea usages and the instinctive love of neatness in seamen, some of whom would not willingly drown without first washing their faces. But in all vessels, this broom business is the prescriptive provenance of the boys if boys there be aboard. Besides, it was the stronger men in the town hoe that had been divided into gangs, taking turns at the pumps, and being the most athletic seaman of them all, Steel Kilt had been regularly assigned captain of one of those gangs. Consequently, he should have been freed from any trivial business not connected with truly nautical duties, such being the case with his comrades. I mention all these particulars so that you may understand exactly how this affair stood between the two men. But there was more than this. The order about the shovel was almost a plainly meant to sting and insult steel kilt, as though Radney had spat in his face. Any man who has gone sailor in a whale ship will understand this, and all this, and doubtless much more, the lake man fully comprehended when the mate uttered his command. But as he sat still for a moment, and he steadfastly looked into the mate's malignant eye and perceived the stacks of powder casks heaped up, up in him, and the slow match silently burning along towards them, as he instinctively saw all this, that strange forbearance and unwillingness to stir up the deeper passionateness in any already ireful being, a repugnance most felt, when felt at all, by really valiant men even when aggrieved, this nameless phantom feeling, gentlemen, stole over steel kilt. Therefore, in his ordinary tone, only a little broken by the bodily exhaustion he was temporarily in, he answered him saying that sweeping the deck was not his business, and he would not do it. And then, without at all alluding to the shovel, he pointed to three lads as the customary sweepers who, not being billeted at the pumps, had done little or nothing all day. To this, Radney replied with an oath in a most domineering and outrageous manner, unconditionally reiterating his command, meanwhile advancing upon the still-seated lake man with an uplifted Cooper's Club hammer, which he had snatched from a cask nearby. Heated and irritated as he was by this spasmodic toil at the pumps for all his first nameless feeling of forbearance, the sweating steel kilt could not but ill brook this bearing in the mate. But somehow, still smothering the conflagration within him, without speaking, he remained doggedly rooted to his seat, till at last the incensed Radney shook the hammer within a few inches of his face, furiously commanding him to do his bidding. 
Steel kilt rose, and slowly retreating round the windlass, steadily followed by the mate with his menacing hammer, deliberately repeated his intention not to obey. Seeing, however, that his forbearance had not the slightest effect, but an awful and unspeakable intimation with his twisted hand, he warned off the foolish and infatuated man. But it was to no purpose. And in this way the two went once slowly round the windlass, when resolved at last no longer to retreat, bethinking him that he had now forborne as much as comported with his humor, the lake man paused on the hatches and thus spoke to the officer. Mr. Radney, I will not obey you. Take that hammer away, or look to yourself. But the predestinated mate, coming still closer to him where the lake man stood fixed, now shook the heavy hammer within an inch of his teeth, meanwhile repeating a string of insufferable maledictions, retreating not the thousandth part of an inch, stabbing him in the eye with the unflinching poignard of his glance. Steel kilt, clenching his right hand behind him and creepingly drawing it back, told his persecutor that if the hammer but grazed his cheek, he, Steelkilt, would murder him. But gentlemen, the fool had been branded for the slaughter by the gods. Immediately the hammer touched the cheek. The next instant the lower jaw of the mate was stove in his head. He fell on the hatch spouting blood like a whale. Ere the cry could go aft, Steelkilt was shaking one of the backstays leading far aloft to where two of his comrades were standing their mastheads. They were both canalers. Canalers, cried Don Pedro. We have seen many whale ships in our albert, but never heard of your canalers. Pardon, who or what are they? Canalers, Don, are the boatmen belonging to our grand Erie Canal. You must have heard of it. Nay, senor, hereabouts in this dull, warm, most lazy and hereditary land we know but little of your vigorous north. Eh? Well then, Don, re refill my cup. Your chicha's very fine. And ere proceeding further, I will tell ye what our canalers are, for such information may throw sidelight upon my story. For three hundred and sixty miles, gentlemen, through the entire breadth of the state of New York, through numerous populous cities and most thriving villages, through long, dismal, uninhabited swamps and affluent, cultivated fields unrivaled for fertility, by billiard room and bar room, through the holy of holies of great forests, on Roman arches over Indian rivers, through sun and shade, by happy hearts or broken, through all the wide contrasting scenery of those noble Mohawk counties, and especially by rows of snow-white chapels whose spires stand almost like milestones, flows one continual stream of Venetianly corrupt and often lawless life. There's your true Ashanti, gentlemen. There howl your pagans, where you ever find them, next door to you, under the long-flung shadow and the snug patronizing lee of churches. For by some curious fatality, as is often noted of your metropolitan freebooters, they, that they ever encamp around the halls of justice, so sinners, gentlemen, must abound in holiest vicinities. Is that the friar passing? said Don Pedro, looking towards the crowded plaza with humorous concern. 
Well, for our northern friend, Dame Isabel's Inquisition wanes in Lima, laughed on Sebastian. Proceed, senor. A moment, pardon, cried another of the company. In the name of all of us Lemis, I but desire to express to you, Sir Sailor, that we have by no means overlooked your delicacy in not substituting present Lima for distant Venice in your corrupt comparison. Oh, do not bow and look surprised. You know the proverb all along the coast. Corrupt as Lima. It but bears out your saying too. Churches more plentiful than billiard tables and forever open. And corrupt as Lima. So too, Venice, I have been there. The holy city of the blessed evangelist, St. Mark. St. Dominic Perget, your cup. Thanks, here, I will refill. Now, you pour out again. Freely depicted in his own vocation, gentlemen, the canaller would make a fine dramatic hero, so abundantly and picturesquely wicked is he. Like Mark Antony, for days and days along his green-turfed flowery Nile, he indolently floats, openly toying with his red-cheeked Cleopatra, ripening his apricot thigh upon the sunny deck. But ashore, all this effeminacy is dashed. The brigandish guise which the canaller so proudly sports, his slouched and gaily ribboned hat betoking this grand features. A terror to the smiling innocence of the villages through which he floats, his swart visage and bold swagger are not unshunned in cities. Once a vagabond on his own canal, I have received good turns from one of these canalers. I thank him heartily, would fain be not ungrateful, but it is often one of the prime redeeming qualities of your man of violence that at times he has as stiff an arm to back a poor stranger in a strait as to plunder a wealthy one. In sum, gentlemen, what the wildness of this canal life is, is emphatically evinced by this, that our wild whale fishery contains so many of its most finished graduates, and that scarce any race of mankind, except Sydney men, are so much distrusted by our whaling captains. Nor does it at all diminish the curiousness of this matter that to many thousands of our rural boys and young men born along the line, the probationary life of the Grand Canal furnishes the sole transition between quietly reaping in a Christian cornfield and recklessly plowing the waters of the most barbaric seas. I see, I see! impetuously exclaimed Don Pedro, spilling his chicha upon his silvery ruffles. No need to travel, the world's one lima. I had thought, now that your temperate north, the generations were cold and holy as the hills, but the story. I left off, gentlemen, where the lake man shook the backstay. Hardly had he done so when he was surrounded by three junior mates and the four harpooners who all crowded him to the deck. By sliding down the ropes like baleful comets, the two canalers rushed into the uproar and sought to drag their man out of it towards the forecastle. Others of the sailors joined with them in this attempt, and a twisted turmoil ensued. While standing out of harm's way, the valiant captain danced up and down with a whale pike, calling upon his officers to manhandle that atrocious scoundrel and smoke him along to the quarterdeck. At intervals, he ran close up to the revolving border of the confusion, and prying into the heart of it with his pike, sought to prick out the object of his resentment. Poor Steel Kilt and his desperadoes were too much for them all. They succeeded in gaining the forecastle deck, where, hastily slewing about three or four large casks in line with the windlass, these sea Parisians entrenched themselves behind the barricade. 
Come out of that, ye pirates, roared the captain, now menacing them with a pistol in each hand, just brought to him by the steward. Come out of that, ye cutthroats! Steelkilt leapt upon the barricade, and striding up and down there, defied the worst the pistols could do, but gave the captain to understand distinctly that his, Steelkilt's, death would be the signal for a murderous mutiny on the part of all hands. Fearing in his heart, lest this might prove to be true, the captain a little desisted, but still commanded the insurgents instantly to return to their duty. "'Will you promise not to touch us if we do?' demanded their ringleader. Turn to, turn to, I make no promise to your duty. Do you want to sink the ship by knocking off at a time like this? Turn to. And he once more raised his pistol. Sink the ship, cried Steelkilt. Hey, let her sink. Not a man of us turns to, unless you swear not to raise a rope yarn against us. What say you men? Turning to his comrades, a fierce cheer was their response. The lake man now patrolled the barricade, all the while keeping his eye on the captain and jerking out such sentences as these. It's not our fault. We didn't want it. I told him to take his hammer away. It was boy's business. He might have known me before this. I told him not to prick the buffalo. I believe I have broken a finger here against his cursed jaw. Ain't those mincing knives down in the forecastle there, men? Look at those hand spikes. My hearties. Captain, by God, look to yourself. Say the word. Don't be a fool. Forget it all. We're ready to turn to. Treat us decently, and we're your men. But we will, won't be flogged. Turn to, I make no promises. Turn to, I say. Look ye now, cried the lake man, flinging out his arm towards them. There are a few of us here, and I am one of them, who have shipped for the cruise, do you see? Now, as you well know, sir, we can claim our discharge as soon as the anchor is down, so we don't want a row. It's not in our interest. We want to be peaceable. We are ready to work. We won't be flogged. Turn to, roared the captain. Steelkilt glanced round him for a moment and then said, I tell you what it is now, Captain. Rather than kill ye and be hung for such a shabby rascal, we won't lift a hand against ye unless ye attack us. But till ye say the word about not flogging us, we don't do a hand's turn. Down into the forecastle then, down with ye. I'll keep you there till you're sick of it. Down ye go. "'Shall we?' cried the ringleader to his men. Most of them were against it, but at length, in obedience to steel kilt, they preceded him down into their dark den, growlingly disappearing, like bears into a cave. As the lakeman's bare head was just level with the planks, the captain and his posse leaped the barricade and, rapidly drawing over the side of the scuttle, planted their group of hands upon it, and loudly calling for the steward to bring a heavy brass padlock belonging to the companionway. Then, opening the slide a little, the captain whispered something down the crack, closing it and turning the key upon them, ten in number, leaving on deck some twenty or more, who thus far had remained neutral. All night a wide-awake watch was kept by all officers, forward and aft, especially about the forecastle scuttle and the fore hatchway, at which place it was feared the insurgents might emerge after breaking through the bulkhead below. But the hours of darkness passed in peace, the men who still remained at their duty toiling hard at the pumps whose clinking and clanking at intervals through the dreary night dismally resounded through the ship. At sunrise the captain went forward and, knocking on the deck, summoned the prisoners to work but with a yell they refused. Water was lowered down to them, and a couple handfuls of biscuit were tossed after it, when, again turning the key upon them and pocketing it, the captain returned to the quarter-deck. 
twice every day. For three days this was repeated. But on the fourth morning a confused wrangling and then a scuffling was heard as the customary summons were delivered. And suddenly four men burst up from the forecastle saying they were ready to turn too. The fetid closeness of the air and the famishing diet, united perhaps to some fears of ultimate retribution, had constrained them to surrender at discretion. Emboldened by this, the captain reiterated his demand to the rest, but Steelkilt shouted up to him a terrific hint to stop his babbling and betake himself where he belonged. On the fifth morning, three others of the mutineers bolted up into the air from the desperate arms below that sought to restrain them. Only three were left. "'Better turn to now,' said the captain with a heartless cheer. "'Shut us up again, will ye?' cried Steelkilt. "'Oh, certainly,' said the captain, and the key clicked. "'It was at this point, gentlemen, that, enraged by the defection of seven of his former associates, "'and stung by the mocking voice that at last hailed him, "'and maddened by his long entombment in a place as black as the bowels of despair, "'it was then that Steelkilt proposed to the two canalers, "'thus far, apparently of one mind with him, "'to burst out of their hole at the next summoning of the garrison, "'and, armed with their keen mincing knives, "'long, crescented, heavy implements with a handle at each end, "'run amuck from the bowsprit to the taffer and if by any devilishness of desperation possible, seize the ship. For himself he would do this, he said, whether they joined him or not. That was the last night he should spend in that den. But the scheme met with no opposition on the part of the other two. They swore they were ready for that, or any other mad thing, for anything in short but a surrender. And what was more, they each insisted upon being the first man on deck when the time to make the rush should come. But to this their leaders as fiercely objected, reserving that priority for himself, particularly as his two comrades would not yield the one to the other in the matter, and both of them could not be first, for the latter would not but admit one man at a time. And here, gentlemen, the foul play of these miscreants must come out. Upon hearing the frantic project of their leader, each in his own separate soul had suddenly lighted, it would seem, upon the same piece of treachery namely to be foremost in breaking out in order to be the first of the three though the last of the ten to surrender and thereby secure whatever small chance of pardon might such conduct merit but when steelkilt made known his determination still to lead them to their last they in some way by some subtle chemistry of villainy mixed their before secret treacheries together and when their leader fell into a doze verbally opened their souls to each other in three sentences and bound the sleeper with cords and gagged him with cords and shrieked out for the captain at midnight thinking murder at hand and smelling in the dark for the blood he and all his armed mates and harpooners rushed for the forecastle in a few minutes the scuttle was opening and bound hand and foot the still struggling ringleader was shoved up into the air by his perfidious allies who at once claimed the honor of securing the man who had been fully ripe for murder but all these were collared and dragged along the deck like dead cattle and side by side were seized up into the mizzen rigging like three quarters of meat where they hung till morning "'Damn ye!' cried the captain, pacing to and fro before them. "'The vultures would not touch ye, ye villains!' At sunrise he summoned all hands, and separating those who had rebelled from those who had taken no part in the mutiny, he told the former that he had a good mind to flog them all round, though upon the whole he would do so, he ought to, 
Justice demanded it, but for the present, considering their timely surrender, he would let them go with a reprimand, which he accordingly administered in the vernacular. But as for you, ye carrion rogues, turning to the three men in the rigging, for you I mean to mince ye up for the tripods. And seizing a rope, he applied it with all his might to the backs of the two traitors till they yelled no more, but lifelessly hung their heads sideways as the two crucified thieves are drawn. My wrist is sprained with ye, he cried at last, but there is still rope enough left for you, my fine bantam, that wouldn't give up. Take that gag from his mouth, and let's hear what he has to say for himself. For a moment the exhausted mutineer made a tremulous motion of his cramped jaws, and then, painfully twisting round his head, said in a sort of hiss, What I say is this, and mind it well, if you flog me, I'll murder you. Say ye so! Then see how ye frighten me. And the captain drew off with the rope to strike. Best not, hissed the lake man, but I must. And the rope was once more drawn back for a stroke. Steelkilt here hissed out something, inaudible to all but the captain, who, to the amazement of all hands, started back, paced the deck rapidly two or three times, and then suddenly, throwing down his rope, said, I won't do it. Let him go. Cut him down, do you hear? But as the junior mates were hurrying to execute the order, a pale man with a bandaged head arrested them, Radney, the chief mate. Ever since the blow he had lain in his berth, but that morning, hearing the tumult on the deck, he had crept out and thus far had watched the whole scene. Such was the state of his mouth that he could hardly speak, but mumbling something about his being willing and able to do what the captain dared not attempt, he snatched the rope and advanced to his pinioned foe. "'You are a coward!' hissed the lake man. "'So I am, but take that!' The mate was in a very act of striking when another hiss stayed his uplifted arm. He paused, and then pausing no more, made good his word, spite of Steel Kilt's threat. Whatever that might have been, the three men were then cut down, all hands were turned to, and sullenly worked by the moody seamen, the iron pumps clanged as before. Just after dark that day, when one watch had retired below, a clamor was heard in the forecastle, and the two trembling traitors running up besieged the cabin door, saying they durst not consort with the crew. Entreaties, cuffs, and kicks could not drive them back, so at their own insistence they were put down in the ship's run for salvation. Still, no sign of mutiny reappeared among the rest. On the contrary, it seemed that, mainly at Steelkilt's instigation, they had resolved to maintain the strictest peacefulness, obey all orders to the last, and, when the ship reached port, desert her in a body. But in order to ensure the speediest end to the voyage, they all agreed to another thing, namely not to sing out for whales in case any should be discovered. For, spite of her leak and spite of all her other perils, the town ho still maintained her mastheads, and her captain was just as willing to lower for a fish that moment as on the day his craft first struck the cruising ground, and Radney the mate was quite as ready to change his berth for a boat, and with his bandaged mouth seek to gag in death the vital jaw of a whale. But though the lake man had induced the seamen to adopt this sort of passiveness in their conduct, he kept his own counsel, at least till all was over. 
concerning his own proper and private revenge upon the man who had stung him in the ventricles of his heart. He was Radney the chief mate's watch, and as if the infatuated man sought to run more than halfway to meet his doom after the scene at the rigging, he insisted against the express counsel of the captain upon resuming the head of his watch that night. Upon this and one or two other circumstances, Steelkilt systematically built the plan of his revenge. During the night, Radney had an unseamanlike way of sitting on the bulwarks of the quarter-deck and leaning his arm upon the gunwale of the boat which was hoisted there, a little above the ship's side in his attitude, it was well known he sometimes dozed. There was a considerable vacancy between the boat and the ship, and down between this was the sea. Steelkilt calculated this time, and found that his next trick at the helm would come round two o'clock in the morning on the third day from that in which he had been betrayed. At his leisure, he employed the interval in braiding something very carefully in his watches below. "'What are you making there?' said a shipmate. "'What do you think?' What, do you, what does it look like? Like a lanyard for your bag, but it's an odd one, seems to me. Yes, rather oddish, said the lake man, holding it an arm's length before him, but I think it will answer. Shipmate, I haven't enough twine. Have you any? But there was none in the forecastle. Then I must go and get some from old Rad. And he rose to go aft. You don't mean to go begging to him, said the sailor. Why not? Do you think he won't do me a turn when it's to help himself in the end, shipmate? And going to the mate, he looked at him quietly and asked him for some twine to mend his hammock. It was given him. Neither twine nor lanyard were seen again, but the next night an iron ball, closely netted, partly rolled from the pocket of the lakeman's monkey jacket as he was tucking the coat into the hammock for his pillow. Twenty-four hours after his trick at the silent helm, nigh to the man who was apt to doze over the grave, always ready, dug to the seaman's hand. That fatal hour was then to come, and in the foreordained soul of Steelkilt, the mate was already stark and stretched as a corpse with his forehead crushed in. But gentlemen, a fool saved the would-be murderer from the bloody deed he had planned, yet complete revenge he had, and without being the avenger. For by a mysterious fatality, heaven itself seemed to step in and take out of his hands into its own the damning thing he would have done. It was just before daybreak, and sunrise of the morning of the second day when there were washing down the decks, that a stupid Tenerife man, drawing water in the main chains, all at once shouted out, there she rolls! There she rolls! Yesu, what a whale! It was Moby Dick! Moby Dick! cried Don Sebastian. Saint Dominique, sir, sailor! But do whales have christenings? Whom call you Moby Dick? A very white and famous and most deadly immortal monster, Don. But that would be too long a story. How, how, cried the young Spaniards, crowding. Nay, Don's, Don's, nay, nay, I cannot rehearse that now. Let me get more into the airs. Sirs, the chicha, the chicha, cried Don Pedro. Our vigorous friend looks faint. Fill up his empty glass. No need, gentlemen. One moment, I proceed. Now, gentlemen, so suddenly perceiving the snowy whale within fifty yards of the ship forgetful of the compact among the crew, in the excitement of the moment the Tenerife man had instinctively and involuntarily lifted his voice for the monster, though for some little time past it had been plainly beheld that the three sullen wastheads, all was now a frenzy, 
the white whale, the white whale was the cry from captain mates and harpooners who, undeterred by fearful rumors, were all anxious to capture so famous and precious a fish. While the dogged crew eyed askance and with curses the appalling beauty of the vast milky mass that lit up by a horizontal spangling sun shifted and glistening like a living opal in the blue morning sea. Gentlemen, a strange fatality pervades the whole career of these events, as if verily mapped out before the world itself was charted. The mutineer was the bowsman of the mate, and while fast to a fish, it was his duty to sit next him while Radney stood up with his lance in the prow and haul in or slacken the line at the word of command. Moreover, when the four boats were lowered, the mates got the start, and none howled more fiercely with delight than did Steelkilt as he strained at his oar. After a stiff pull, their harpooner got fast, and spear in hand, Radney sprang to the bow. He was always a furious man, it seems, in a boat, and now his bandaged cry was to beach him on the whale's topmost back. Nothing loath, his bowsman hauled him up and up. Through a blinding foam, they bent two whitenesses together, till of a sudden the boat struck against a sunken ledge and, keeling over, spilled out the standing mate. That instant, as he fell on the whale's slippery back, the boat righted and was dashed against side by a swell, while Radney was tossed over into the sea on the other flank of the whale. He struck out through the spray and for an instant was dimly seen through that veil, wildly seeking to remove himself from the eye of Moby Dick. But the whale rushed round in a sudden maelstrom, seizing the swimmer between its jaws and rearing high with him, plunged headlong and went down. Meantime, at the first tap of the boat's bottom, the lakeman had slackened the line so as to drop astern from the whirlpool. Calmly looking on, he thought his own thoughts. But a sudden, terrific downward jerking of the boat quickly brought his knife to the line. He cut it, and the whale was free, but... At some distance, Moby Dick rose again with some tatters of Radney's red woolen shirt caught in the teeth that had destroyed him. All four boats gave chase again, but the whale eluded him and finally wholly disappeared. In good time, the town ho reached her port, a savage, solitary place where no civilized creature resided. There, headed by the lake man, all but five or six of the four mastmen deliberately deserted among the palms, eventually, as it turned out, seizing a large double war canoe of the savages and setting sail for some other harbor. The ship's company being reduced to but a handful, the captain called upon the islanders to assist him in the laborious business of heaving down a ship to stop a leak. But to such unresting vigilance over their dangerous allies was this small band of whites necessitated, both by night and by day, and so extreme was the hard work they underwent, that upon the vessel being ready again for sea, they were in such a weakened condition that the captain durst not put off with them in so heavy a vessel. After taking counsel with his officers, he anchored the ship as far offshore as possible, loaded and ran out his two cannon from the bows, stacked his muskets on the poop, and warning the islanders not to approach the ship at their peril, took one man with him and setting the sail of the best whaleboat, steered straight before the wind for Tahiti, 500 miles distant, to procure a reinforcement to his crew. On the fourth day of the sail, a large canoe was descried, which seemed to have touched at a low isle of corals. He steered away from it, but the savage craft bore down on him, and soon the voice of Steelkilt hauled him to heave to, or he would run him under the water. The captain presented a pistol. With one foot on each prow of the yoked war canoes, the lake man laughed him to scorn, assuring him that if the pistol so much as clicked in the lock, he would bury him in bubbles and foam. 
"'What do you want of me?' cried the captain. "'Where are you bound, and for what are you bound?' demanded Steelkilt. "'No lies. I'm bound for Tahiti for more men. "'Very good. Let me board you for a moment. I come in peace.' With that, he leapt from the canoe, swam to the boat, and climbed the gunwale, stood face to face with the captain. "'Cross your arms, sir. Throw back your head. Now, repeat after me. As soon as Steelkilt leaves me, I swear to beach this boat on yonder island and remain there six days. If I do not, may lightning strike me.' "'A pretty scholar,' laughed the lake man. "'Adios, senor!' And leaping into the sea, he swam back to his comrades. Watching the boat till it was fairly beached and drawn up to the roots of the coconut trees, Steelkilt made sail again and in due time arrived at Tahiti, his own place of destination. There, luck befriended him, two ships were about to sail for France and were providentially in want of precisely that number of men which the sailor headed. They embarked and so forever got the start of their former captain, had he been at all mind to work them legal retribution. Some ten days after the French ship sailed, the whaleboat arrived and the captain was forced to enlist some of the more civilized Tahitians who had been somewhat used to the sea. Chartering a small native schooner, he returned with them to his vessel and, finding it all right there, again resumed his cruisings. Where Steelkilt now is, gentlemen, none know. But upon the island of Nantucket, the widow of Radney still turns to the sea which refuses to give up its dead. Still in dreams seems the awful white whale that destroyed him. Are you through? said Don Sebastian quietly. I am, Don. Then I entreat you, tell me if to the best of your own convictions this story is in substance really true? It is so passing wonderful. Did you get it from an unquestionable source? Bear with me if I seem to press. Also bear with all of us, Sir Sailor, for we all join in Don Sebastian's suit, cried the company, with exceeding interest. Is there a copy of the Holy Evangelists in this golden inn, gentlemen? Nay, said Don Sebastian, but I know a worthy priest nearby who will quickly procure one for me. I go for it, but are you well advised this may grow too serious? Will you be so good as to bring the priest also, Don? Though there are no auto de fa in Lima now, said one of the company to another, I fear our sailor friend runs the risk of the archpiscopacy. Let us withdraw more out of the moonlight. I see no need of this. Excuse me for running after you, Don Sebastian, but may I also beg that you will be particular in procuring the largest-sized evangelists you can. This is the priest. He brings you the evangelists said Don Sebastian, gravely, returning with a tall and solemn figure. Let me remove my hat. Now, venerable priest, further into the light, and hold the holy book before me so that I might touch it. So help me heaven, and on my honor the story I have told ye, gentlemen, is in substance and its great items true. I know it to be true. It happened on this ball. I trod the ship. I knew the crew. I have seen and talked with Steelkilt since the death of Radney. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.